Rainbow Warrior. Rainbow Warrior. Stop your engines. You have entered Soviet waters. I was sound asleep in my bunk, cabin four, on the Greenpeace flagship Rainbow Warrior when I heard those words. I knew that I had to wake up, I had to get dressed, I had to get up on deck. So I got dressed, grabbed my video camera, and hit the record button because I was the official videographer for that part of the journey. And I didn't want to miss a chance at some award-winning footage. <laughs> I ran up the stairs. On deck, it was dark, pitch black, well after midnight. But I could easily see the brightly lit, ominous Soviet destroyer as it approached the ship. I ran to the wheelhouse. In the beginning, I thought it was really serendipitous to be asked to crew on the warrior. At the time, I was living in the Aleutian Islands. I was married with two kids, and I had a great job. I was running the television and radio station for the area. I had traveled to the Soviet Union as the official journalist for a sister city exchange between Unalaska, where I lived, and Petropavlovsk. Petropavlovsk happened to be the city and the port that Greenpeace wanted to enter as part of the nuclear free seas campaign. For Petro had the largest nuclear submarine base in the Soviet Union. Having been there a few months before, I had all kinds of contacts. I knew the governor, I knew the mayor, I knew all the business people, and I knew all the broadcast people. Those kinds of contacts can open doors. So the campaign director invited me to crew and go to Petro with them. It was a dream come true. I was a longtime Greenpeace supporter and had thought, what would it be like to be on that ship? It was really good timing. My two kids were older. Emmett was eight, Sina was 13. It was almost time for summer break. They were going to be fine with their dad for a while. <laughs> I also felt that it could be a really good time for my husband and I to have some time apart, a little bit of a break. It's not that we had a bad relationship. It's just that we had grown apart. We weren't communicating like we used to. It happens to a lot of couples. So I was hoping that there was some wisdom in that old saying, absence makes the heart grow fonder. So with my family's blessing, I set off to meet the ship. And I flew from Unalaska out in the Aleutian Islands to Anchorage, then to Seattle, then to San Francisco, then to Tokyo, and finally to Hokodate, where the warrior was waiting for the rest of the crew to arrive. The Rainbow Warrior is an absolutely beautiful sailing ship with a rainbow painted on the bows. And when the sails are unfurled, these huge birds of peace just flutter in the wind. And there is absolutely nothing 
like standing on that deck when you're under sail and you smell that salty sea air and all you hear are the waves and the gulls. The crew was from all over the world. I was the only one from the United States, so I joined folks that were from Australia, New Zealand, Switzerland, Germany, France. Um, it, was a, it was a great dynamic crew. We loaded food, water, fuel, and we set out across the Pacific Ocean, away from the coast of Japan to the Kamchatka Peninsula, where Petropavlovsk was located. Having never sailed on a big ship like that before, I'd been on plenty of crab boats, but nothing that large, I had um, those little wristbands and several medications so that I was not going to get seasick. Well, within 24 hours, I was sicker than a dog. I could not leave my bunk, and I just stayed below deck for about three days. Um, when I finally started to get my sea legs and I could um, keep my food down, I attended my first campaign briefing. <coughs> campaign briefings, we'd all gather in the galley and we'd get transmissions from Amsterdam. We'd be briefed on what was happening and we'd also get our crew assignments. So besides what I did was the video work, um, we would be assigned uh, cleaning bathrooms or working in the galley. Every day we had Russian lessons, so we would learn Russian words, Russian phrases, and history, so that we were going to be prepared when we went into Petropavlovsk. Every day we did inflatable action drills. Lynn would wrap her old, very large style video camera in plastic. You'd climb down the side of the ship and you'd get into one of those zodiacs, those wonderful little rubber dinghies. And we would race around the Pacific Ocean pretending to evade um, enemies and taunt them. <laughs> it was a little bit unnerving to be out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean with a little life vest on. But you know, that was, the, that was being an activist at sea, and I was completely down with it. Uh, in, um, oh, and in the evenings, we would um, we'd go down to the galley, or we'd sit in the wheelhouse, and we'd drink Foster's beer. We had cases and cases of this Australian beer on board. And I would get to hear all these stories from other campaigners, and it was, it was absolutely fascinating. Um, another thing that I did during that voyage is I kept this journal. And I was you know, tracking chronologically what happened. I was writing things down. And I was also writing messages to my family because I had no other way to communicate with them. Dear Sina and Emmett, today a dozen dolphins danced around the ship as we sailed. It was absolutely magical. Dear Jimmy, I miss you. Even though we seem miles apart these days, even more so now, you're still my best friend. 
As we started to approach the Kamchatka Peninsula, I was able to reach via radio a person that I'd met, a friend of mine in Petro, Nikita, who ran the independent television station. This is opposed to the state-run communist television station. And he told us, he's like, you are not going to get into port. You know, the whole town knows that the KGB Border Patrol is going to stop you. Two days later, we were boarded. A group of sailors came on, came to the wheelhouse, talked to the skipper, and said, don't, you know, keep your engines shut off and sit here until morning. Since we couldn't sleep, we all went down to the galley, and we were going to figure out next moves, come up with our strategy, and get something to eat. When the sun started coming up, we were all back on deck, and the sight that greeted us was absolutely surreal, because to our left was a huge Soviet naval battleship, and to the right was another huge Soviet battleship. And directly in front of us was a partially submerged nuclear submarine. <laughs> First strategy. Okay, <laughs> we, we were going to invite the KGB <laughs> and the military to come onto the warrior. We were going to tell them our story, share our information, talk about our mission. They were going to be won over, and we were going to be escorted. <laughs> yeah, well, all we got was a stern warning from the ship's commanders that we weren't supposed to move and they weren't coming to visit. <laughs> Plan B. <laughs> we were going to try and contact everybody that I knew in Petropavlovsk. I mean, after all, I had the governor's card. I knew the mayor. Um, I knew some of the KGB. So we, that was the plan. We were going to start calling everybody, creating public outcry about the situation. And we were going to sit on that 12-mile limit and wait them out. <laughs> For two weeks, we sat on the 12-mile limit, dead in the water, surrounded by the Soviet Navy. So things kind of calmed down in the campaign world. We were pretty bored, somewhat frustrated. But we continued to cook and clean and nightly, we drank Fosters. <laughs> and we listened to music. And the absolutely favorite song of each day was the Beatles back in the USSR. <laughs> Interestingly enough, we continued our action drills. <laughs> camera in plastic and we'd climb down the rope ladders and we'd get into those little zodiacs and we would race around <laughs> the destroyers. <laughs> and we you know and we we creep up on the back of the submarine. After a while 
while, you know, the sailors, they got kind of bored with these kind of antics and they started taking pot shots at us. <laughs> you know, we must have made great moving targets. The majority of the crew, they were completely at ease with this. They'd been on plenty of campaigns. Me, I was scared to death and I was like, you know, is this like worth risking my life for? We continued our negotiations. We kept trying to get somebody to listen to us, but nothing worked. We even heard that Gorbachev's secretary was in town working with the KGB for our entry visa. That, that didn't happen. And I continued to keep my journal. Dear Sina and Emmett, we're still on the 12-mile limit. I can see the Avacha volcano in the distance, but I don't think we're going to get into port. I spent the day baking batches and batches of chocolate chip cookies for the crew. Dear Jimmy, I realize now how absorbed I've become in my work at the TV station. I'm really sorry. I've neglected you and us. I know I can do better. After 13 days on the 12-mile limit, the supplies were running low, including the Fosters. <laughs> and the lawyer had to be in Homer, Alaska in five days for the fisheries campaign. So we knew we had to leave. We radioed our comrades in Petro and told them of our decision and said goodbye. And without a word to the Navy escort, we started the engines and we left Soviet waters. It's interesting, but I remember the weather was absolutely beautiful, which is unusual, as we made our way from the Kamchatka Peninsula down the Aleutian chain. We stopped and we dropped anchor off of Amchitka Island, and we had a big solstice party. It was that island in 1971 that a small group of activists went there to try and stop one of the first nuclear weapons tests. They sailed there in an old fishing boat called the Green Peace. Hmm. We thought it was really fitting to honor that first Greenpeace voyage as we concluded the Nuclear Free Seas campaign. We continued down the chain, and as we approached Unalaska, where I lived, they were going to drop me off at my house. <laughs> I know, pretty cool, huh? <laughs> um, I could see Mount Valley View in the distance. That's where the airport is. It's, you cannot miss it. And I started to get really excited because like, I was home. And while I had had a wonderful adventure and I would not have traded any of it, I was ready to give up my life of an activist at sea. I just wanted my life back. <coughs> I wanted to see Sina and Emmett. I wanted to share the stories that I had written down. I wanted to see Jim and explain 
everything that I'd realized while I was gone all those weeks and how I thought we could put some more balance into our relationship. As we entered the harbor and we headed towards the fuel dock, I kept looking for my car and it wasn't there. And we radioed ahead for the ETA ship and the warrior is a pretty hard ship to miss when it sails into a harbor of a little fishing village. We docked, I hauled my duffel bag and my camera equipment up and I was putting it out on the dock and my neighbor drives up. He comes over and he gives me a hug and I'm like, so where's Jim? He's off island and he wanted me to pick you up. Where, where are my kids? They're with your folks in Seattle. And he hands me a letter. I don't really remember the drive back to my house. I know he wanted to talk about the trip, but I was pretty dazed and confused and I just sat there holding the letter. When we got to my house, I walked in to this empty silence. I dropped my bags on the landing and I went down to the bedroom and I just sat on the end of the bed and I read what Jim had written. He hoped that the campaign had been successful and that I was well. <clears throat> my kids were having a great time with the grandparents in Seattle. He decided to go to Hawaii while I was gone. And please don't bother calling or coming over there because he was there with Carol and they were in love. Carol was one of my very dear friends. So the room's kind of spinning. And I knew that it was from being landsick because I was no longer being rocked on the boat. But I also knew that I was heartsick because not only had my short-lived career on the Rainbow Warrior come to an end, but so had my 20-year marriage. <clears throat> 